The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, while I still think the chances of some sort of coup, and this was not a coup uh, attempt, certainly, but chances of some sort of coup while were very low uh, prior to the events in the last uh, few days, I think they're a little higher now. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 27th, 2023. It was a heck of a weekend in Russia. There was an insurrection, kind of, a coup, sort of, a column of troops led by Wagner chieftain Yevgeny Prigozhin marched toward Moscow from Rostov-on-Don, threatened the destabilization of the Putin regime, and then, in a sudden backflip, everybody stood down and the whole thing was resolved in a weird deal between the Russian president and the renegade mercenary. It was like a thing out of the movies, and we figured we would get our Russia crew together to talk it all through. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio was Alina Polyakova, president of the Center for European Policy Analysis, cybersecurity guru and lawfare contributing editor Matt Tate, and Dmitry Alperovich of the Silverado Policy Accelerator. It was a really interesting conversation. We covered a lot of ground. What happened over the weekend? What do we know and what do we think? What does it mean for Vladimir Putin's regime? What does it mean for the war in Ukraine? We covered it all, and here's the conversation. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 27th, what the frickin' hell happened in Russia? So, Alina, I want to start with the bare facts of what we know, because everybody has an interpretation about what happened, and we're going to get to all of those. But the, the, the bare facts of the weekend are what? How would you describe what, what we know happened? Well, I would say there's a lot more that we don't know, but uh, what we do know is that uh, at some point on uh, Saturday, a column of Wagner fighters, mercenary fighters under the leadership of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of Wagner, apparently left their posts in Ukraine where they've been engaged in the uh, Russian war effort there and began a march uh, towards the Russian southern city of Rostov, where 
Russia has been using that city as a hub for a lot of its uh, military operations in Ukraine. Uh, they marched into uh, Rostov basically uh, with open arms uh, from city residents, took over the military headquarters there, and then uh, continued on uh, up the M4 highway heading towards the city of Voronezh and then eventually towards Moscow. Um, then uh, within that 24 hours, uh, we had an, a series of events that took place in the context of what was happening on the ground. And uh, others can probably fill in if I leave something out because it was a really chaotic uh, situation. But we had a lot of social media communication, primarily on Telegram, uh, the messaging app that m- many Russians use and others use, uh, where we had Prigozhin posting uh, videos of him with his fighters. Uh, we had him doing voice messages. We had uh, members of Russia's military command responding to those messages uh, with their own videos. Um, and there was a bit of a conversation uh, happening between Russia's military and, and Wagner. And Wagner uh, claimed, Prigozhin claimed that they started this whole thing, uh, one, because uh, they uh, claimed there were fired upon the Russian government missile and that several Wagner soldiers um, had died as a result of that and that they were really doing this uh, to show how badly uh, the military effort uh, by the Russian official military has been going in Ukraine um, and to really bring more attention to this. And of course, Prigozhin for months have been increasingly more uh, belligerent, uh, more um, forward-leaning, if you will, on criticizing uh, Russia's military capabilities in Ukraine, at times even stopping short of directly criticizing Putin, but certainly uh, alluding to the fact that uh, Putin was uh, uh, at fault uh, for starting the war and that the war was started under false premises. Um, He said that very directly, which goes completely against um, Russia's government's uh, narrative on, on this, of course. So long story short, within basically about... 40, 48 hours or less than that, uh, we have this column of uh, very uh, seasoned soldiers uh, going towards Moscow, uh, being met with open arms and then increasing panic. Uh, we have Putin disappearing from public view only to reappear to make a very strange uh, public statement uh, comparing uh, what was happening to 1917 and World War One during the Bolshevik Revolution calling this a mutiny, calling uh, Prigozhin and others criminals. And then suddenly there's an announcement that uh, Prigozhin puts out saying they're turning back. And then we learned there was a supposed deal struck that Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus, mediated uh, to allow uh, this confrontation to come to an end. And part of the deal supposedly is that Prigozhin will now go to Belarus and that Wagner fighters who did not participate in the insurrection uh, will be uh, allowed to take military contracts with the reg- regular Russian forces and those who did partic- participate uh, will have immunity. I think I got all of that. There's more to say, but uh, others can fill in if I miss some some parts out. But that's a lot of facts uh, on the ground there. All right. So let's do the following. Dimitri... I want you to give your best interpretation of these events. Uh, what, what do you think actually happened over the weekend? And then, Matt, 
give your areas of agreement and disagreement with Dimitri. And Alina, uh, you give your interpretation uh, in dialogue with Matt and uh, Dimitri. So, Dimitri, what's your theory of the case? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that this was not a coup. This was a mutiny. And the reasons for it are actually very basic. It's essentially a business dispute. Uh, what happened is that the pivotal event that happened was on June 10th, uh, Defense Minister Shoigu issued an order to dismantle all private military contractors in Russia, including Wagner, the most prominent, by July 1st. Uh, and everyone had to sign on with the Ministry of Defense and operate as part of the Russian military. That was a big problem for Prigozhin. Uh, Wagner was not only, not only his source of power, but it was also an important business for him because you can bet that he's skimming a lot of money from the funds that he is receiving from the Russian military uh, to continue fighting Ukraine and prosecute various other campaigns in, in Africa and Syria and elsewhere. And he thought, I think, that uh, Putin would stay out of this and he could basically ignore Shoigu's order. He came out defiantly saying that no one in Wagner plans to sign on with the MOD. And then to his shock... A week or so later, Putin comes out in a uh, meeting with uh, mill bloggers and reaffirms Shoigu's order, saying that, yes, of course, everyone's going to sign on with the MOD and PMCs, these volunteers, as, he, as Putin called them, that are fighting in Ukraine are all going to be under one umbrella. And as the deadline was looming, as July 1st uh, deadline was approaching, Prigozhin was getting desperate. And he had to do something. And I think in his mind, he thought that if he could do this demonstration run into Rostov, have another access of attacks, or so to speak, of, of a column driving to Moscow, that he could pressure Shoigu and Gerasimov into conceding and effectively giving him what he wants, which is control of Wagner. And if, by the way, he makes him look even weaker uh, as a result of this action and Putin fires them, even better. Um, that's sort of a secondary goal of trying to get both of these guys replaced and, and winning the bureaucratic battle that he's been engaged with vis-a-vis with -vis them. And unfortunately for him, uh, for the first 13 hours, things looked wonderful, right? He rolled into Rostov. He took over Southern Military District Headquarters, which is essentially the nerve center for prosecution of the war in Ukraine. It's sort of like taking over Tampa and driving into CENTCOM and taking it over in the midst of a war with Iraq. And uh, he did that without firing a shot. Uh, it was remarkable to see the videos of the military police that were there, the Rosguardia National Guard units, the, the military, the FSB even at the border, basically standing aside and, and doing nothing. Not fleeing, not surrendering, not uh, you know turning over and joining Wagner, but just doing nothing. And it was quite clear that they had no orders and, and, and didn't know uh, what they were going to do, what they were supposed to do, I should say. Then 13 hours later, after he started this, uh, this uh, endeavor, Putin came out and saw this not as a business dispute, as uh, Prigozhin was thinking, but as a potential coup, as a threat to his power, as a challenge to him, and, and more, more than anything else, as a major act of disloyalty, right? And if there's one thing that Putin cares about deeply, it is loyalty. You can kill, you can rob, you can steal, but you cannot be disloyal. 
And for Prigozhin, a guy that he has known, I don't think very well, but certainly have been an acquaintance of his for well over 20 years, going back to the St. Petersburg days, to do this, Putin just found so outrageous. And he was livid in that initial video that he put out um, 13 hours into the, into the mutiny. And he's still very angry. He just released a video literally about an hour ago that um, you can see in his eyes the hatred and, 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 and the anger. At, at this treachery, as, as he sees it. And once Putin labeled Prigozhin as, as traitor, Prigozhin, I think, was shocked. He didn't expect uh, such a strong response. He certainly, I don't think, had any intention of taking over Moscow and seizing power, uh, in part because what is he going to do with it, right? Uh, just imagine the scenario, Wagner with 5,000 people or so that were in that northern access column, getting into Moscow, taking the Kremlin, let's say they even arrest or kill Putin. And then what? They have no power base in Russia. They can't run Russia. Uh, it's just ridiculous. So he clearly did not want that. And then the Russian military started mobilizing to some extent, building defenses around Moscow. So there's potential for battle that uh, he uh, potentially could lose. And then he started looking for a deal. And um, the other thing that happened, amazingly enough, is that Putin comes out and announces that these are traitors that have to be crushed. And then they're not crushed. The Russian Air Force does not bomb them to a significant extent. There are a few strikes on them, but uh, quite limited. No one is able to stop them from getting within a couple of hours of Moscow. And I think Putin himself got uh, quite scared about the potential here. Uh, and both sides started looking for ways to make a deal. Prigozhin was trying to reach uh, reportedly Putin. Putin refused to talk to him because he felt like this was beneath him. So they orchestrated an intermediary in Lukashenko um, and worked out some sort of deal. What this deal really is, I think, is still murky. If you listen to Putin, if you listen to Peskov, the deal is that Wagner is gone, that they, they have an option of signing on with the MOD and uh, or go back to their families or move to Belarus uh, for some reason, and there won't be any prosecutions against them. Uh, but the interesting thing is that uh, Wagner continues to operate. For about 24 hours, there was this period where Wagner was essentially blacklisted in Russia. Their offices were being raided, their posters, recruiting posters were being taken down, even their merchandise that they sell online was being taken down. And now it's mostly all back up. Uh, even TASS, the Russian news agency, posted this morning that uh, recruiting offices all over Russia uh, for Wagner are reopening. They're putting the posters back up. That's very curious for an organization that's about to be shut down, right, uh, counting the days till July 1st. Not to mention that's an insurrectionary organization. That's right. Uh, that little fact that see everyone seems to be now willing to forget and, and move on from. And uh, in fact, there's been uh, a couple of political leaders that have come out and said, well, these boys didn't really do anything. They didn't harm anyone. They just went into Rostov, completely forgetting the multiple helicopters and one fixed aircraft that they shot down and at least the 13 pilots that they've killed. But other than that, they really didn't hurt anyone. And uh, there does seem to be this uh, desire on the part of the Russian state to just move on and pretend that this incident uh, never happened. Um, the key question, of course, is what happens to Prigozhin right now and, and where is he? he? He just put out a video a few hours ago, uh, basically 
outlining his rationale for, for what he was trying to do, reaffirming that this was not a coup, um, actually saying that this was all about preserving Wagner. Of course, in his interpretation, um, the reason he did that is because he views Wagner as a key national security tool for the Russian state and dismantling it is, is, is a terrible act uh, that would weaken Russia. Uh, he is, of course, a huge patriot, uh, as, as everyone can imagine. But uh, it's he did. He said nothing about going to Belarus. He said nothing about the future of Wagner. So it remains to be seen how this all plays out in terms of uh, his standing in Russia or his freedom and his potential longevity. Uh, but if he survives and survives as a free man, I think he's got a big future ahead of him because he instantly created huge name recognition for himself in Russia. Uh, people knew of Wagner, kind of, but uh, they didn't know it well because it's actually not been present in uh, TV news in Russia. It was not well covered. All of the gains in 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 Ukraine that uh, Wagner had gotten, Solidar and Bakhmut, were basically attributed to the overall Russian military effort. Well, now everyone knows who Prigozhin is in Russia, and the fact that he was able to confront the Kremlin, confront the system, at least for now, that's a big if, of course, uh, for now, get away with it. Um, that is very significant and has made him quite popular. As we've seen when he was leaving Rostov, people were cheering, some people were hugging his soldiers. And I think that quite a few Russians uh, were actually secretly cheer- cheering for his efforts. All right, Matt, how much of that articulation of the theory of the case do you buy? And to the extent that you disagree with any of it, what do you propose as the alternative theory? Yes, I, I agree with a lot of that sort of the, the theory on the day. Um, I think to really understand the entire of the dispute, you have to go back a little bit, uh, you know, all the way back out to October when Prigozhin uh, and, and the, the Wagner group started having, you know, very serious disputes with uh, the Ministry of Defense, in particular with uh, uh, Minister of Defense Shoigu and Gerasimov. Um, which was at the time fundamentally over supply issues and uh, Prigozhin basically accusing MOD of deprioritizing getting, you know, appropriate supplies to, to Wagner and Wagner having, you know, a, a heavier losses than it would have done otherwise. And at the time, Prigozhin was, you know, very careful to, you know, attribute that blame to the Ministry of Defense and not to Putin himself. Uh, you know, he was uh, uh, very careful uh, to, you know, not show disloyalty to the state or to, to Putin himself. And that dispute between Wagner and MOD got steadily worse for, you know, several months uh, until you start to see in, you know, a, a, a uh, March and April, that that relationship completely falls apart, uh, where you know Prigozhin is is outright calling for you know uh, uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov to be removed from office, uh, saying that, that they are disloyal to the state, and calling for Putin to essentially intermediate uh, and to uh, resolve the problem, um, putting him fundamentally at odds with the MOD in the way that they're. Uh, uh, planning their operations inside uh, Ukraine, and eventually Prigozhin, you know, uh, 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 throwing what basically amounts to a, a big temper tantrum and, and saying like Wagner is going to pull out of Bakhmut if you don't do something. And 
what then happens is there's a, a process inside the, the Ministry of Defense to, you know, uh, uh, withdraw Wagner forces and to replace them with MOD forces. But clearly inside Moscow at the, the same time, you have a lot of concerns over what Wagner has become and uh, uh, whether or not this organization is fundamentally loyal and what should what, what should happen with the, the very substantial force that Wagner has built up uh, if they're not going to be committed to uh, uh, Russia's uh, uh, war efforts in Ukraine. And so it's at this point that you see this order you know, come down to try and convert the, the uh, Wagner forces into MOD forces, uh, initially through strong arming and better contracting terms uh, for Wagner forces that convert out to MOD forces, and a little bit later through this uh, uh, order that was due to come into force uh, that would compel them to, you know, or, or strong arm them into uh, becoming MOD contract rather than, than Wagner forces. Um, where I disagree with Dimitri is that this idea that this was fundamentally a business dispute. There's certainly a lot of business aspects to it, but the, the problem that Prigozhin has is that he has a lot of very powerful enemies, not just internationally, uh, but within Russia itself, uh, with the Ministry of Defense. Uh, there's a lot of people that you know viscerally hate him, and Wagner is his personal protection force as well. And so the way that I see this case is him having this real problem of in the event that Wagner is substantially diminished in force, that implicates his personal security in a way that uh, uh, I think that he would have felt as an, an existential threat to him personally. And so I think what probably happened is uh, in the past few weeks, uh, he's seen Putin siding with the Ministry of Defense uh, against him, him becoming terrified as to what the, the substantial dissolution of Wagner Group would mean for him personally, and thinking about how he could resolve that situation in a way that you know, he, he can't afford to keep you know, uh, 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 the Wagner force off his own merits. Uh, just off his own, you know, uh, a business contract, how that's going to look for him and how to maintain his personal security. And so him starting to have to think about uh, what it would mean to remove MOD leadership or to get Putin's attention. And I think what's basically happened, I think the, the proximate cause for, you know, the, the mutiny was basically this. But also the, the fact that the, the National Security Council and FSB in Russia itself uh, uh, started to see Prigozhin as a, a real threat to the integrity of Russia itself, uh, clearly correctly, and began this process of deciding what to do with him and whether or not to get rid of him. And Prigozhin, on the day that he begins his mutiny, um, basically uh, uh, says that the Ministry of Defense has uh, uh, performed strikes uh, against Wagner Group. Uh, it's not actually clear whether that really took place or whether this is uh, paranoia or, or what exactly happened there. And you see at this point, Prigozhin basically goes all in on his mutiny. Um, I think what he expected was better support from inside other security groups inside Russia. 
he was very successful in sort of uh, uh, coming into Russia to, you know, uh, uh, take control of the, the military headquarters in, in Rostov's region. And I think that, that at that point, Putin saw this as a, a direct threat and as a coup, essentially. And, and at that point, I think Putin saw it as a coup, whether or not you want to say Prigozhin uh, saw it as a coup. I think Putin definitely did. And Putin expected... Uh, 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 Russian forces to be able to, at that point, decapitate uh, uh, Wagner Group and to dissolve it. Um, and I think Putin was shocked by uh, the speed at which Wagner forces overran that region and the ineffectiveness of Russian forces, the, the border forces, the local forces, the uh, uh, FSB forces and the Russian Air Force in actually preventing that. And I think that's why you see Putin actually allowing this deal to go ahead at all, uh, rather than I think what he would have preferred to do, which is to have uh, uh, basically smashed Wagner and to, to make a point. Yeah. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I 
recommend delete me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Okay, so Alina, who's right? And if they're both wrong, how do you understand these events? What's your interpretation? Well, I think that the truth is that any of these interpretations could be right because we just don't know uh, what happened behind the scenes. I think a couple of things just to add here. One is that, you know, I tend to uh, agree with Matt that this had to go beyond, you know, business deal gone awry, although that certainly contributed to it. I think just as much as we've learned uh, that Prigozhin, you know, obviously has enemies within the Kremlin, he also obviously has allies. Um this was not, you know, a suicide mission that he was planning. He's not the kind of man, I think, uh, who is ready to die for his ideals, to say the least. What he cares about is his own survival and, of course, money. But I don't think he would have gone this far uh, without having some certainty that he would get in some sort of protection. I think what's been really interesting to watch is how stupid the response from the Kremlin was to this whole thing. To really underestimate initially the effect of this uh, Putin disappearing, uh, making then the strange appearance that looked very uh, chaotic, very panicked, very weak. And then you call someone a traitor and then you let them off the hook, basically. Um, it, It just really showed how the system cannot respond and cannot adapt quickly. And, you know, Putin gives a talk, you know, now we're on Monday, that was obviously an overcorrection. 
where he says they're going to be crushed more or less, they're traitors. Uh, so now he has, I think, seen or been advised at least that this has shown him to be very, very weak um, and that he now is overcorrecting and putting out his uh, strong man kind of um, narrative out there. But I just wonder if it's too late uh, because I think we, just as we overestimated Russia's military capabilities ahead of the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year, and we've seen how actually uh, badly they performed, at least um, at the beginning of the war, certainly. You know, I think uh, we've also overestimated um, the consolidation and the the command and control under Putin in this regime. I mean, he's going to obviously have to do something more um, at the level of the elite um, to shore up support for him, because I do agree with Dmitry that he one thing that Putin does not tolerate is disloyalty. And this was an obvious show of disloyalty, but it took quite a while, I think, for them to pivot um, and figure out how to respond. And I think that's been telling. I also think that there's something interesting that we've learned about Putin from this, you know, uh, that the vision and the image that was very much shaped by Russian propaganda uh, that Putin, you know, is like a rat, you know, this famous image, the story he tells about himself uh, that, you know, when he was a child growing up on the mean streets of Leningrad, he saw a rat cornered and that rat lashed out. Um, and that is kind of the understanding that's what Putin would do when he's cornered and pressed and challenged. But actually what he did when he was challenged in this most extraordinary way uh, was that he negotiated. Uh, and I think that's a very telling example of how uh, some of our analysis has also gone wrong about Putin's responses to crises and also the Russian system's ability to respond to crises. You know, we just really overestimate uh, the Russian state and Putin himself as a man. Yeah, that's a super interesting contrast between his self-image and self-presentation and his actual behavior. All right, Dmitry. I want to go back to a point you made earlier about uh, Prigozhin's calculations, because I'm genuinely befuddled by them. He gets within a few hundred, couple hundred miles of Moscow. He's um, been greeted uh, warmly in Rostov-on-Don, uh, and he's downed some some Russian fixed wings and some some helicopters, and yet he apparently doesn't think that Putin will regard it as a coup attempt. That seems like a colossal kind of absurd miscalculation. Why is he surprised that Putin sees this as disloyal? Well, as with all bad plans, uh, it got out of hand and out, out of hand very quickly. He, I don't think, ever expected it to go that far. By the way, I want to come back. Uh, just really quickly to a point I made earlier. I was speaking slightly in jest when I said this is just a business deal. Yes, Wagner is his company that he makes a lot of money on and is lucrative in other ways in terms of potential mining concessions that he may be getting in Africa and elsewhere. But yes, of course, it's also a source of his power and having 25,000 battle-hardened men armed to the teeth and quite loyal to him is a significant source of power. And by the way, he has turned Wagner over last nine or 10 months into really political platform, 
having a very active social media presence, giving interviews to anyone that writes him on Telegram. And uh, trust me, he's not doing this uh, because he's so eager to get the truth out or the real story out. He's been doing this in part to build his reputation inside Russia, including most likely for uh, political benefits down the road. So Wagner is very important to him for a range of reasons, including business ones. But, but you know, the business reasons are very important. And in Russia, a lot, money matters for a lot. And uh, in a mafia state that Putin runs, you can uh, often explain things by looking at who's getting paid and why. And, and, and that's what I meant, meant by, by, by a business deal gone awry. But the, uh, with, rea- uh, with regards to his assumptions and him not expecting that Putin would see it as a coup, he really thought that he can portray Shoigu and Gerasimov as weak. And, and by the way, he had some precedent for this because over the past, what, four or five months as he's been badgering Shoigu and Gerasimov for not giving them enough weapons and as he, his videos got increasingly unhinged, uh, you know, standing in front of corpses and screaming at them for being incompetent. And, and then uh, just last week, uh, before he launched this mutiny, even saying that they were the ones that tricked Putin into this war and, and, and the war was uh, triggered on false pretenses. Of course, he knows very well that this was Putin's war. Uh, everyone is well aware of that. But uh, I think in a way he was trying to float a balloon that Putin might catch if he wanted to find fall guys uh, for a war that's not going well. Here he was presenting Shoigu and Gerasimov on a, on a platter uh, and allowing Putin to, to say, oh, you know, I, I never really meant to invade Ukraine. You know, these guys tricked me into it. Of course, Putin didn't bite. Uh, he, I think, is still fully committed to this war. And uh, increasingly, Prigozhin kept miscalculating um, and thought that just because Putin had stayed out of this fight, of this, uh, you know, mafia Razborki, as I called it on Twitter, Twitter which is a Russian word for gangland warfare, um, that he would continue to stay out of it and, and would treat it simply as Prigozhin challenging Shoigu yet again. But he went too far, and uh, he really did not appreciate that, and particularly the column on Moscow. I think maybe he could have gotten away with Rostov. There, were, there was this remarkable video where he rolls into the, the military headquarters and sits down with the deputy defense minister with the deputy head of the GRU, Alexeyev, who in many ways was responsible for building up Wagner and has worked closely with them, and basically outlines his demands that he wants to meet with Shoigu and Gerasimov, he wants to get rid of them. And Alexeyev, actually on video, this deputy GRU general says, you can take them. Uh, It's quite a remarkable scene and, and very indicative for what Russia has become. In fact, the perfect metaphor, I think, not just for this weekend, but for everything that Russia represents right now was this tank, this Wagner tank that rolled into the gates of a circus in Rostov about two blocks away from the uh, Southern Military District HQ and seemingly got stuck there. And the tank in a circus, I think, really describes Russia very well. Yeah, it was a beautiful tweet that you uh, shared that with, uh, the, the, the picture of it. So, uh, Matt, I want to start with you on this, but I want uh, everybody's uh, thoughts on it. Is this a sideshow from the Ukraine war, uh, or is this objective? I mean, it sort of looks like it's over now, or at least 
maybe it looks like it's over. Is it a kind of sideshow or is it objectively important because it reflects this state of regime stability in Moscow? How should we think about this in reference to, you know, the actual war that Russia is supposedly fighting? That's a great question. I think the answer is both in the sense that, you know, from a a very short term uh, perspective, I don't think it changes what's happening in Ukraine very substantially um, in the sense that Putin and and Russia did not withdraw forces from Ukraine in order to deal with the uh, insurrection. They didn't have any you know, substantial losses. I mean, they they had, you know, some aircraft losses, uh, uh, but they've been having aircraft losses for, you know, a a while. This is a a little bit more severe, but it's sort of a a, a few weeks worth of losses there. Their, you know, primary force is is still deployed in Ukraine. It was deployed before. Um, I think their their key objectives are roughly the same. Uh, During the insurrection, they were continuing to, you know, uh, bomb Kiev and other cities, and their supply lines were not substantially affected, so far as anyone can tell. Um, so in the short term, I don't think it makes a, a huge amount of difference. In the medium and long term, I think that it does make quite a lot of difference in two different directions. Um, the first is that this really shows inside Russia how dysfunctional the security services are working together. And that's going to have a very severely demoralizing effect, I think, in, inside uh, the Russian forces. It's going to really project into, you know, their psyche that, you know, that it's not clear what they're fighting for. Uh, it's clear that there's a lot of, you know, interagency fighting and, you know, uh, uh, inter-power uh, uh, group fighting that's for personal reasons uh, between these, you know, uh, uh, security apparatchiks, um, which is not necessarily uh, as something that you want to be seeing your, you know, uh, uh, commander-in-chief and your your senior commanders in, engaged in when you're on the front lines wondering why you're not getting supplies. Uh, so that's going to have a very severely demoralizing effect. Um, and the, the, the other problem, of course, is that this has very dramatically weakened both uh, uh, Prigozhin and Putin uh, uh, within the eyes of the security establishment, within the eyes of uh, uh, Russia itself. And that's going to fundamentally destabilize Russia in a way that's going to be very difficult for them to dig their way out of. It's, it's going to be very difficult, I think, for Putin now to project his image as someone that is able to keep the war away from Moscow. It's difficult for him to project his uh, uh, image as in charge of all of these forces of chaos uh, uh, and able to direct them uh, towards Ukraine and away from Russia. All of these are, are, are now out of, uh, the toothpaste is out of the tube, and I, I don't think he can put that back in. And that's going to put him at personal risk. It's going to mean that he is going to operate much more uh, paranoid than he was before. And this idea that coups can't happen in Russia, like farcical as, as that belief might have been uh, even recently, given the number of coups that have happened, that, that this is is something that uh, I think, you know, that he's not going to be able to repair that. Alina has to leave us momentarily. So uh, uh, please address uh, this question and any other you feel like uh, uh, talking about before you jump off. 
No, thanks. Been really uh, fascinating to to hear these perspectives. And you know, I think the, the one point I'd make, thinking about the implications for Western support for Ukraine. I mean, of course, in Ukraine, uh, everybody was watching this very, very closely. There were a lot of viral videos that uh, and pictures that went around of <laughs> Ukrainians and military commanders uh, sitting with uh, big piles of popcorn watching this unfold, but. I think the reality is that the implications for uh, the military situation on the ground are probably minimal or uh, at best unclear based on what's just happened. Um, And then on the other hand, if we're thinking about uh, how should the alliance, uh, the NATO alliance, the United States be thinking about what's just gone down in Russia, as we think strategically in terms of our, uh, as long as it takes uh, support for Ukraine. And I think the point I would make again is that uh, this regime is just far more fragile than we thought. And I think that that gives us, if not a tactical opportunity on the battlefield, but certainly a strategic opportunity to double down on support for Ukraine uh, because things inside Russia are not as consolidated as we thought. Um, it's not. It's no longer clear uh, that uh, some sort of change of power, you know, we assume that Putin would basically be there throughout the war, and he would remain there uh, when the war ends, um, at whatever point that may be. But that's that's not a uh, such a certain uh, scenario now. Uh, while I still think the chances of some sort of coup, and this was not a coup uh, attempt, certainly, but chances of some sort of coup well, were very low uh, prior to the events of the last uh, few days, I think they're a little higher now. Because certainly those around Putin are going to be looking around and thinking, well, you know, can I be that person that pulls this off? Do I have the backing? Do I have the ability? You know, Wagner is not the only PMC out there that has a a sponsor. There are others. Wagner's just the most high profile. So I think there's a lot to think about here. And I don't think we can assume anymore that some sort of internal struggle that will lead to a change of the government in Russia is so far outside the realm of possibilities or that it's so far in in the distant future. And I think we need to prepare one strategically to be ready for that potential scenario, what it might mean and the range of responses. And two, to again, double down on support for Ukraine. And we're going to see what the Alliance will do. You know, we have the NATO summit coming up in just a little over two weeks uh, and I think there, there we're going to see what kind of support Ukraine can expect in the long term. And I would think that the events in Russia will frame uh, what happens at the summit of NATO leaders um, in July. So things could potentially be good for Ukraine in the longer term, uh, but I don't think it will have much effect um, in the day to day on the ground. So, Dimitri, uh, let's pick up uh, on this point that Alina made, um, which is that this may not have been a coup, but it kind of invites a coup. Do you agree with that? I mean, is has this taken the robe off the emperor and shown that regime stability is a myth and, you know, every eager colonel now is... Uh, invited to give it a try? So there's no question that Putin has been dramatically weakened by this action. He is demonstrated 
that he is not just incapable of making rapid decisions, but that even when he declares 13 hours late that he's going to crush the traders, he does uh, something that's completely opposite of that, which is to let them leave Rostov to cheering crowds and hugs of the crowds and uh, dismiss uh, criminal cases against them. And there's real questions about whether the military actually obeyed his orders to bomb the convoy heading to Moscow or not. And the fact that the security services and the military did nothing for 13 hours while uh, he was nowhere to be found is, is also very interesting. And here's the key question for me. If Prigozhin truly gets away with it, and, and I want to emphasize it's an if, right? You know, he could be killed tomorrow. He could still be jailed because Belarus, after all, is now no exile because it's still a vassal state of Russia. So if tomorrow Putin calls up Lukashenko and says, give him up, uh, guess what's going to happen? Uh, so that's all still possible. But if he remains a free man and even if he actually remains uh, as the leader of Wagner and Wagner remains as a potent force, that's going to mean very problematic things for Putin because everyone in Russia across the elites, whether it's various governors or people in the security services and elsewhere, are going to be asking themselves, if Goshen can get away with this, what can I get away with? Right, whether it's to further enrich myself, whether it's to grab more power in my little region in Russia, can I just go and do that without asking permission from the Kremlin, without coordinating with the Kremlin? And as long as the power keeps dissipating from the central authorities in Moscow, the weaker Russia becomes, the weaker Putin's regime becomes. It doesn't necessarily mean that Putin is about to be overthrown. Uh, I think the likelihood of that is still fairly low. And... What it likely means is that people are just going to be doing their own things without coordination, and they're going to start ignoring them. In fact, Putin's worst nightmare might just come true, which is that he might turn into Yeltsin, sort of uh, old-age Yeltsin sort of in the late 90s. When he was still president of Russia, he could still make decisions and, and change prime ministers and appoint new ministers. But in reality, many people were ignoring him or setting up various uh, rival clans were fighting with each other for state resources and power and so forth. And he was mostly out of touch on all of that. And Putin increasingly looks like a president that's out of touch. And all you have to do is just think about some of the recent coups and mutinies that we've seen, right? Remember 2016 and the coup in Turkey when the military tried to overthrow Erdogan? Erdogan swiftly not just put down the mutiny, but went after everyone, the mutineers and people that had nothing to do with them but were just opposition figures. He put them all in jail, right? The, the journalists, the judges, other political figures. I think it was um, 40,000 people. Exactly. Then you had the same situation take place with uh, Lukashenko, where the protests erupted in 2020 when he rigged the elections. Uh, people poured out in the streets and he brutally suppressed them. Didn't hesitate. He even came out with a gun. Now, most of that was staged, but he led from the front. Very, very different from Putin, right, who is letting these mutineers off the hook. Um, that's a major sign of weakness. And here's one scenario that I didn't think was at all likely uh, last Friday even, uh, but I, I increasingly think might be plausible, not yet likely, but plausible, is you have elections coming up in 2024. Putin has not yet declared that he's running. Clearly, he had intentions to run, but you may have people come to him now, whether it's uh, Nikolai Patrushev, the head of the uh, Security Council, whose son he had Putin promote and uh, who had now become the agriculture minister in Russia, the son, 
and uh, by the way, not because of his great talents uh, in managing agricultural ministry, uh, but there's been talk that maybe he could be a successor to Putin. There are other candidates as well. And they may come to him and say, look, old man, this is not a coup, but clearly you're starting to lose control. Clearly chaos is emerging in Russia. Why don't you step aside, not run in these elections? We will take care of you. Uh, you know, this is going to be like a Khrushchev situation. You're going to go off into the sunset, keep your billions. We're going to make sure you never are turned over to the International Criminal Court. We'll protect you. But let's turn it over to the next generation who can do this better. That's a possibility now. I don't think it's very likely, but, it, you know, it may get more and more likely as power increasingly sort of atrophies in Russia. So that is one scenario that is now possible, which is not really a coup, but, you know, a managed transition of power to other parts of the elites that are just as nationalistic, by the way, and as implicated in these war crimes and the war in Ukraine as Putin. Uh, so... You, you may not see actually a lot in, uh, in terms of change policy-wise with regards to this war, uh, but a transition away from Putin. Again, I want to emphasize, still low likelihood, but is now becoming possible. Matt, what do you think? Are, are we looking at the end of Putin's regime here, or is this, you know, one bump in the road at a time? Well, Putin has a long track history of being able to manage elite dysfunction and power dysfunction inside Russia. Um, so it's, it's dangerous to bet against him. Lots of people have made that bet and, and have lost in the past. Um, but I think the big problem for Putin is twofold. Um, first of all, th there's very few power centers. There's very few people with the, the brute force uh, to be able to credibly challenge the regime. Um, most of them are, are security agencies. When we look at, you know, successful coups in the past, you know, they very often come from, you know, militaries or, or security agencies. And Putin has really humiliated them uh, through this whole saga. Uh, you know, the National Security Council uh, um, uh, announced uh, that uh, Prigozhin was a, a traitor. Uh, Prigozhin had uh, very overtly, you know, challenged the authority of the Ministry of Defense and called for its leadership to resign. He had shot down helicopters. Uh, the FSB was uh, in charge of the operation to uh, challenge Prigozhin and, and through the, the criminal indictment of him. Uh, so the, the security agencies had basically all agreed that Prigozhin was a traitor, uh, even if they failed to stop him. And Putin eventually had to side with Prigozhin. So all of these security agencies look weak and stupid, uh, uh, thanks to Putin's response. And I think that's uh, destabilized his relationship with those security agencies, you know, probably not fatally, but certainly in a way that means that they will be thinking between themselves whether or not Putin is the right person to lead them indefinitely into the future. And the second big problem is that the Putin's number one argument for the, the Ukraine war and, and allowing it to continue is this idea that he can wait out the West, um, that the, the West will eventually run out of interest with, you know, supporting Ukraine, uh, the military supplies will dry up, and at that point, Russia will be back in control, they'll have the initiative, and they'll be able to uh, uh, roll over Ukraine. And what this has really cemented this new idea uh, inside Russia that actually maybe Putin can't wait out uh, the West, uh, that actually, you know, in, in 2024, when, you know, the 
uh, next elections happen in the United States. Uh, uh, maybe Joe Biden will be reelected. Maybe he won't. Uh, but, you know, will Putin, you know, still be around then? Will Putin still be around four years later? Um, and this sort of idea that actually maybe when Putin is telling everybody that, you know, he can wait this out longer than the West and that at that point they will be successful, that maybe that's not actually true. And that's going to change the way that they do their analysis inside Russia as to what to do about it. We are going to leave it there. Matt Tate, Dmitry Alperovich, Alina Polyakova, thank you all so much for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode is the one, the only Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Hey, folks. You are our publicity department. So get on it, people. Tweet us. You know, create Reddit subgroups, subreddits to discuss the Lawfare podcast. Pin us on Pinterest. We want the TikTok videos. And of course, leave a rating and review wherever you found us. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, and as always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.